Our passage this morning is Psalm 119, so if you have a Bible or you need to grab one in front of you or pull it up on your phone, find Psalm 119. In your bulletin, there's a page of notes, and uh, as I was just walking up, I realized we helped you out. We gave you the last answer on the notes this morning, so you're welcome for that. Psalm 119. This is our third week of four weeks where we're going to talk about Psalm 119. We're spending a month on this psalm because it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, 176 verses. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that 171 of those verses, give or take, make some sort of mention or reference to the Bible itself. And there's a number of different words that you find in this psalm referring to the Bible. Sometimes it's called testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandment, law, rule, word, promise, truth, judgments, many different words used. If you've been here the last few weeks, you also know that this is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. That was one of the Jews' favorite types of poetry. It had 22 letters in their alphabet, and there's 22 sections in Psalm 119, Each section has eight verses. Each verse in a section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when you look at your text and you see that verse one has above it a note that says Aleph, maybe your your translation even has the Hebrew script for Aleph. Every line in that section, verse one to eight, begins with a word that begins with the letter Aleph and so on all the way through the alphabet, all 22 sections. Uh, word of history, a note of history for those who, who like historical things. John Calvin was a preacher in Geneva. He was a great reformer, and when he preached through the book of Psalms, he preached, not surprising, 22 sermons on Psalm 119. He just took a section each Sunday, which you could easily do. We've talked about on Sunday mornings that preaching in big chunks, four big chunks, you just sort of have to pull a verse or two here and there. You can't talk about everything in this psalm, but Calvin spent 22 weeks trying to do that. And a guy named Thomas Manton, he was a Puritan. He wrote a three-volume work, and by three volumes, I mean three big books just on Psalm 119. So this is a psalm that has influenced theologians and pastors and churches and Christians for thousands and thousands of years. And we're going to read it this morning. We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to read our verses for the morning, beginning in verse 89 and then going all the way to verse 136. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along as I read. Words should be on the screen as well. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. 
I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You're my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Let's pray. Father, this morning we simply ask that you would make us like the psalmist when he says that he opens his mouth and he's panting because he longs for your commandments. We pray that you would fill us with a desire for your word. That when we gather together in in corporate worship that we would have a hunger to hear from you through your word. That when we leave this building and we're in our homes and our our lives, that we would have a hunger for your word, that we would seek it and value it and treasure it, 
read it, meditate on it. Father, and as we think about these verses and as we think about what Psalm 119 tells us about your word, we pray that you would change the way that we think and you would change our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna talk about these sections, six sections. And we're just gonna skim over them because we can't talk about everything in them. Before we start, I want you to look one more time at verse 113, Psalm 119, 113. It says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I just want you to think about that. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. When you look at that verse, and especially as you look at the second part where he says, I love your law, just show of hands, on a show of hands. How many of you would say that that's either true of you or you hope that it would be true of you? Raise your hand. That you love God's law. You love his word. Most of you probably raise your hand. I love God's law. Hate the double-minded, but I love your law. By our own profession, we say we want to love God's word. I wonder how many of us, if put on the spot, like maybe you raise your hand, maybe I ask you up here right now, could tell you all the books in the Bible in order, 66 books. Some of our Awana kiddos could do that, and they learn those on Wednesday nights. And some of you could get going pretty good, but I bet when you get to the minor prophets, you'd have to think or you'd get tripped up maybe. No show of hands on that one. I wonder how many of us would raise our hand and say, I believe God's word in its most basic fundamental assertion that God is the creator of everything that exists. I bet most of you, you're here on a Sunday morning, I bet you would raise your hand and you would say, yes, I believe that God is the creator of everything that exists. I wonder how many of us could go through and detail what he created on which day of creation. Uh, Well, I know that he made it. I don't know that I could spell it all out. Or another example, most of us would say, I think the Ten Commandments are important. The Ten Commandments are valuable. They're part of God's word. Uh, We have a mall with the Ten Commandments statue in it. I like that. That's nice. I'm all for the Ten Commandments. But then if I gave you the microphone and said, come up here and tell us the Ten Commandments, all ten in order, I bet the average person could get seven out of ten. Six out of ten? When I've given this quiz to to Bible study groups and Sunday school classes, that's about the average. Six or seven out of ten people can get. Do you see the irony here? We say on the one hand, I love God's word. I love it. It's important to me. And then we turn around, and I'm not asking for complex, detailed, nitpicky questions. I'm just saying big things that the Bible talks about. We sort of scratch our heads and say, well, I know it's in there somewhere, but I don't know that I know it. I don't know that I could tell you about that. And the psalmist says this, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Okay, take it out of just anecdotal thought with you and me in this room, and let's look at some statistics from the Barna Group. The Barna Group says that among people who say, okay, this is not the general public, This is among the people who say, I am a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. They answer that question, yes, I'm a born-again follower of Jesus. 92% of them say the Bible's totally accurate. I wonder about the other eight, but 92 will take. 92%. Born-again believers say the Bible is totally accurate. Then listen to these numbers. 46% say 
Satan's not real. Half. Not real. It's just a fiction. It's just a fable. It's just a story to scare children. Even though Jesus thought he was real, thought he was talking with somebody in the wilderness, you put, how do you put those two numbers together? 92% say the Bible is accurate. It's true. It's right. And then half say, well, but not in that part. Not real. 37% say you can be good enough to earn your way into heaven. This is not like average Joes off the street. This is people sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. People who profess to be born-again Christians. 92% say the Bible is totally accurate. Assuming, we assume that that means it's accurate when it says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But then 37% turn around and say, well, you can, you can be good enough to get to heaven on your own. Look at this last one. It's a smaller percentage, but 26% say Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. It's not, we're not asking Muslims this question. We're not asking uh, liberal college students this question. We're not asking uh, you know, some crazy group of people, uh, drug dealers, this question. We're asking people in church on a Sunday morning, did Jesus sin, yes or no? And one out of four who say the Bible's totally accurate in everything that it describes, who say they're a born-again follower of Jesus, one out of four turn around and say, well, you know, he probably. One or a couple, maybe. Yeah, probably. I don't know how you do the math on that, on the 92 and then all those other numbers, but here's one number that might help you figure some of it out. 38% say they haven't read the Bible in the last week. So 40% of people who say, I am a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, also say, I haven't cracked the Bible in the last week. So one of two things is going on when you look at these numbers. One possibility is that we have confusion in our society about what it means to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe that term is just totally meaningless. I think there's a little bit of that going on. Another part of the problem is we have some double-minded people. We have people who, on the one hand, 92% say, it's true, it's accurate, it's all there. But, you know, not this part, or that part, or the other part. Somehow you've got to fit that all together and make sense of it. And as a pastor, and as a follower of Jesus Christ with you guys, I don't want us to be double-minded when it comes to this book. I don't want us to be confused when it comes to this book. I don't want us to say one thing in this room about this book and then live as if we really don't believe that. I don't want us to pay lip service to this book when we come into this room, but then we leave and we say, well, you know, what is actually in it? What does it say about this, that? I don't know, I have no idea. Lip service is not enough. The psalmist says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law, and I want us to be people who love God's law. And Psalm 119 gives you hundreds of reasons to love the Word of God. And this morning, I'm just going to talk with you about six of those, one from each of these sections that we're covering. The first one is this. God's Word will not change. It will not change. And I hope this is comforting to you when you live in a world where laws change all the time. We pass new laws. We get rid of old ones. The court says, this one is good. No, that one's bad. And they're just constantly in flux. When oil prices and gas prices are changing all the time, up and down and up and down, 
when sports teams are good one year and bad another year, when the weather changes, everything changes, technology changes. How many of you got your new iPhone on order already, right? Just wait three months, there'll be an eight coming out. You'll be behind the times. It's always changing, always changing. Everything's changing. And the psalmist says there's one thing you can put underneath your feet as bedrock and it is not going to change. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's not just that God's word is fixed. It's not just that it's firmly fixed. It's not just that it's firmly fixed in the heavens. He's just piling up all these words because he doesn't know how else to make his point. Forever, it's firmly fixed in the heavens. Any one of those words all by itself would say to you it doesn't change. It's fixed. Okay, it's it's not changing. But he goes further than that. It's firmly fixed. Okay, it's really not changing. Forever, it's firmly fixed. Does not change. God's word will not change. Jesus believed this. Matthew 5, Jesus talked about this. Jesus said, Not one dot, not one iota is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. It's not just going to pass away. It's not how it works. Isaiah, the prophet, believed this, and Peter agreed with Isaiah because he quoted Isaiah, and both of them said the word of God, it's not like the grass that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's not like the flowers you see that they're here tomorrow, they look great when you buy them at Lowe's and then you take them home and they die in your yard. It's not like that. It's not like that. It's firmly fixed forever in the heavens. God's word does not change. Number two, it gives wisdom. God's word gives you wisdom. Verse 98 and 99 and 100. The psalmist says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. If you want understanding and knowledge and wisdom, you turn to God's word. It gives you wisdom. And look at the application of this in verse 104. This is mentioned several times in the verses we just read. Through your precepts, I get understanding. He's talking about wisdom again. Therefore, I hate every false way. We read the word hate in the verses we covered multiple times that's the word when you're growing up with your kids you try to caution them to say "Eh, let's not say we hate things because when you're grown up you understand the intensity of that word the seriousness of that word the gravity of that word and the psalmist is not just being flippant it's not like a slip of the tongue he's thought this through and he says because of the wisdom that I have through your word I look at every false way and I hate it Not only does God's word make you wise, but it will help you discern good and bad, right and wrong. And when it's really rooted in your life and it becomes part of who you are, it gives you deep, strong conviction so that you can maybe even say with the psalmist, I hate every false way. Number three, it gives us direction. Direction. Verse 105, I bet you know this verse I bet some of you, when we read it, you started singing the tune in your head. Some of the Psalms, when you read through the book of Psalms, you read a verse, you almost can't read it without reading it to the tune that you learned it to. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
gives me direction. You know, I talk with people all the time who are dealing with some sort of crisis in their life, some sort of difficulty, some sort of challenging situation, and I know that some of you are sitting in the room this morning and you're dealing with those things. You're in the middle of it. And I talk to people, they come to me, they know I'm a pastor, and sometimes they just want to talk, sometimes they want advice, but a lot of those people who come to me, they know, they, they have this conviction that they ought to turn to God's Word for direction. I know what the Bible says, or what does the Bible say? I need to know what the Bible says. And they have this question, what does God's Word say? How would God's Word direct me? That's a great question to ask when you find yourself in a challenging situation in life, right? When you find yourself in a place of suffering or or difficulty or confusion to say, what does God's word say to me right now? Here's the kicker. A lot of those people I sit with and I look them in the eye, maybe they're having a, a family problem or a marriage problem or a work problem or some other sort of personal problem and I'll share with them, this is what God's word says. It's one thing to know it It's another thing to do it. And all too often I talk with people and they want to know what God's word says. What does God's word say? I want want God's word to direct my life. But then they walk out of our conversation and they're not willing to follow the path that God's word has set right in front of them. Look what he says in Psalm 119 in this noon section beginning in verse 105. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm not just going to look down this path and see what's over there, but I'm going to swear an oath and confirm it. I'm following where you lead me. Look at verse 109. I hold my life continually in my hand, but I do not forget your law. I'm not going to forget it. I'm not going to hear Your words say, this is the direction that you need to go, and then just in one ear, out the other, forget about it. I'm going to remember it. I will not forget it. Verse 110, the wicked lay a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. I will not move to the right or to the left. This is the path before me, and I'm going to follow it. Verse 112, he knows that he's going to be tempted not to do these things, so he says, I'm inclining my heart to perform your statutes forever." to the end. It's giving me direction and I'm going to follow that path where you lead me. Number four, God's word warns about judgment. Warns about judgment. You know, I thought about this section this week, verse 118 and 119, talk about the judgment of God. And as I thought about it, I thought this is kind of hard for us in the United States to hear a word of judgment. And it's hard for a couple of different reasons, and you can disagree with me, but I really think one of the reasons it's hard for us to hear a warning of God's judgment in the Bible is because we are warned about everything today. I don't know if you noticed that, but there are warnings about everything that you may face in life. The classic example is what? McDonald's coffee. Caution, I'm hot. In case you didn't know, I know you just ordered coffee, hot coffee, but you just need a warning, caution. This is hot. I went around the church this week and I just looked for some other warnings that I thought you might appreciate. I found a great warning on a pack of diapers in the nursery this week. Here's the warning. You ready? Some of your parents might want to jot this down. Disposable diapers will burn if exposed to flame. 
For your child's safety, keep the child and diapers away from flame. How did any children live before that warning was on the package? I don't know if you're using diapers or cloth diapers or no diapers. It's pretty good advice to keep your children away from flames. So there's the warning on diapers. This one I liked a lot. Right around the corner in the closet, we have a ladder. And it's almost exactly like that one. It has one, two, three, four. Let me tell you how I count the steps on that ladder. I count one, two, three, four, five. There are five steps on that ladder. And all the way down the side, you can sort of see it on that one. It looks a little bit different than the one in the closet, but here's what the warning says. Number one, warning. Keep your body centered between the side rails. That's kind of boring when you're using a ladder. You have to stay in, but you can't. You've got to stay centered in the middle. Do not stand above the second step from the top. Warning. You just bought a ladder with five steps, but you can't use the top two. I just thought it was the top one you weren't supposed to use, but the warning says you can't even use the next one down from that. So you got a three-step ladder. You got a foldable chair is what you just bought. All four feet need to be on a level surface. I like this next one. You need to wear slip-resistant shoes. Before you get on the ladder, slip-resistant shoes. And then it ends with this. Failure to read and follow instructions on this ladder may result in death. They're all over the place. We're warned about everything. And eventually when you're warned about everything, you stop paying attention to all of it, right? I mean, the truth is ladders are dangerous. I have a friend in Kentucky that almost died falling off of a ladder. And the truth is diapers are flammable and you shouldn't take your kids next to the campfire and hold the diaper over there to see what happens. It's dangerous. But when you're warned all the time, you just sort of become numb to it, right? This is why you can get on an airplane, an airplane, a big giant metal boat that's going to go in the air and they give you all the warnings at the beginning and what do you do? You put your headphones in. You don't listen. I've heard it before. This is why you can go to an amusement park. You should do this the next time you go to an amusement park. And you can get in line for that ride. It doesn't have to be the crazy roller coaster or the kiddie spin around carousel thing, whatever. You get online. You don't read the warning right there, do you? Some of you are like, there's a warning? I never noticed there's a warning. There's a warning there. You know what it says? You could die on this ride. We don't read it. They're everywhere. We don't listen to them. We think we know. And Psalm 119 is giving us a warning that you should not ignore. You should not take lightly. Look what he says in verse 118 and 119. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. The idea is there, if someone is going astray from your statutes, you're pushing that person away. You're turning yourself away from them. That's pretty serious, right? If you're going to come to God's word and you're going to walk away from it, you're not going to take it seriously. You're going to take it lightly and flippantly and not listen to it. Well, you just need to understand that God spurns all who go astray. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. That's a warning. That's a warning in the Bible saying if you are wicked and you walk away from God's 
God's word and his truth and his precepts and his testimony, his commandments, and you're just going to go the other direction. You just need to know that God is going to spurn you. He's going to turn away from those people. There will be judgment for those people. And I know back in the quote-unquote good old days, you used to hear a lot of hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. And every now and then somebody says to me, I sure am glad you don't preach hell, fire, and brimstone. And every now and then somebody says, we just need a little more hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. So I don't know how you feel about it, but this is like hell, hell, fire, and brimstone in the book of Psalms, right? If you're going to walk away from God's word, that's fine. It's just a warning that comes with that. And you need to take that warning seriously. It warns us about judgment. The flip side of that is, number five, God's word promises salvation. Promises salvation. Look at verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation, for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. When Brooke and I lived in Amarillo, before we moved to Kentucky, we we took some kiddos at our apartment complex to our church for Awana on Wednesday nights. And there was a little girl, I think she was pre-K, kindergarten age, and she had a, a hard time getting some of her words out. And that was the first verse she memorized at Awana. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You understand the psalmist, when he writes this, is living on the backside of God fulfilling that promise, right? It hasn't happened yet. And he's saying, you've made these promises to your people and I'm waiting for you to keep them. You promised the woman in the garden that one of her offspring would come and crush the serpent and we're waiting for that to happen. And you promised Abraham that one of his descendants, someone from his family would bring blessing to the entire world and that has not happened yet so we are waiting. We long for the day when you keep your promise. And you told David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever and have a never-ending kingdom. And that has not happened yet, and we're waiting for you to do that. And through the prophet Isaiah, you promised Isaiah that one day a servant would come and bear, carry our sins. We're waiting for that to happen. You and I live on the other side of that fulfillment. We're not looking forward to it, we're looking back to it which means we read verse 123 with a whole new level of meaning where the psalmist says, my eyes long for your salvation and the fulfillment of your righteous promise. I'm waiting, I'm looking forward, I'm hoping that you're gonna do all the things you said we were gonna do. You and I look back and we say, he did them all. He did it. He kept his word. He promised salvation and he delivered on it. He sent the offspring of the woman to crush the serpent's head and he sent one of Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. He sent David's son to sit on the throne and to be the king over all kings. And he sent the servant promised in Isaiah to bear our sins and to give us life. He kept his promise. He promised salvation and he's delivered. So God's word promises salvation. Number six, last section for this morning. God's word calls us to grieve sin grieve sin. There's a couple of interesting verses in this last section we're looking at, this pay section, but I like verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
My dad used to coach my sister's basketball team growing up. I'll put a picture of my sister up. There's my sister and I, little sister, on vacation, I guess it was about a year ago, and then that's us when we were kids. I just found that. Facebook sent that to me this week, so I thought, it's appropriate. I'll put it up there. Um, my dad used to coach her basketball team when she was growing up. They, they had an AAU basketball team. So you look at the picture and you say, well, you got the height, but she got the basketball skills, but you got the good looks, so it's probably even in the end. So we came out even. And uh, one of the things they used to do when they played basketball is they would go to these national tournaments. It was in a different place every year. And one year the national tournament was in Orlando, and some of you maybe have been to this place. It's the Disney Wide World of Sports Complex, and uh, the HP Center is where the basketball games are played. And for a lot of the first games in this tournament, they had big curtains that divided that floor into four sections, and they played four games at a time. But for the final games, last few games, they took the curtains down and they played on the, on the big floor. And when they went to this tournament, they ended up getting fifth in the nation. And the last game that they won before they were eliminated, they were playing a team called the Kansas Bells. And uh, I don't know what was going on with that team. Either they were like, they had found some sort of steroid to grow tall, skinny girls, but they had girls that were like six and a half feet tall, and I'm talking like sixth grade girls. They were just humongous, these great, giant, tall girls. Or maybe they forged birth certificates. I don't know. One of the two. But this team, this team, the Kansas Bells, they're just steamrolling everybody in this tournament. And, you know, you're all in the room together, and you're watching a lot of these games, and everybody's just looking at this team like, how are we going to beat? No one can beat this team. These girls are so good. They're so big. They're so tall. They're so fast. And uh, when I thought about this verse, I thought about the Kansas Bells. It says, my eyes shed streams of tears. My sister's team played the Kansas Bells, and it was sort of a back-and-forth game. It was really close, and they didn't have anybody nearly as tall as those girls, but they just sort of scrapped and hustled. Came down to the very last possession of the game, And my sister's team had the ball. And I don't remember who dribbled up, but I remembered they threw it to one of their post players named Rachel. And uh, Rachel, sort of two, three seconds left, turns around and she just throws this line drive. It had no arc. It just went straight. And somehow it went over the front of the rim and in and the buzzer went off and they won by one point. And they beat this team, the Kansas Bells. And I'm telling you that I sat in that arena and I looked down the way, I'm not talking about looking at the girls on the Kansas Bells team. I'm not saying that they were crying. I'm not saying their moms were crying. I'm telling you, I looked at grown men, the fathers of the girls on that team, uncontrollably weeping. I'm not talking like, you know, you you go to the movie with your husband and it's a tearjerker and he's like... Something in the air. Allergies. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the violent, sobbing, boo-hooing, just messy, convulsing, hysterical, weeping, shedding tears. Why? Because that was important to them. They loved their girls. They had invested in it. They had invested money in it and time in it and energy in it. They were emotionally connected. And when it just got ripped out from under them unexpectedly, they were moved to tears. 
And this is convicting to me because the psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And there's a delicate balance here where on the one hand, the sections that we read say that we're called to hate every false way. That's an emotion that we're called to feel. We look at people walking down false ways and we should hate that because our love for for God's word is so strong. The flip side is the psalmist says, I look at this. I look at people who are walking not according to your word and it, it breaks my heart. And just the way that I'm wired, it's easier for me to look at false ways and say, I hate that. I hate it. That comes pretty easy for me, and for some of you, it comes easy for you. But the psalmist turns around and he says, I look at that, and it's not just anger and hatred that's in the mix, but it breaks my heart. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The last thing, which I think is filled in on your outlines and is really important, is that Jesus is the embodiment of Psalm 119. Every week I try to point you beyond the written word of God to the living word of God. And I don't just want this four-week study of Psalm 119 to cause you to leave and to think more highly of the Bible. I hope that that happens, but I also want it to point you to Jesus. And what I want you to see this morning in pointing you to Christ is that everything we've talked about this morning that's true of God's word is also true of Jesus. Everything that Psalm 119 says that's true about the written word is also true of the living word. So for example, Psalm 119 says God's word will not change. What does Hebrews 13.8 say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not going to change. Psalm 119 says that God's word gives us wisdom. And what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth. There's no wisdom apart from truth. I'm the truth. If you want to have wisdom, if you want to know the truth, it's found in me. Psalm 119 says that God's word gives you direction to follow. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. This is what we talked about. It's not enough just to have the information come in one ear and out the other. It's not enough just to hear his commandments, to hear what Jesus is saying, but you have to do it. You have to build your house on the right foundation. You have to follow the direction. Psalm 119 says that God's word talks about judgment and salvation. And you can look later at Matthew 25. Jesus tells a parable, and in that parable there are sheep and goats. And one of those groups, the goats, experience judgment. It's hellfire and brimstone. It's reality. And the other group, the sheep, experience salvation. Both true about God's word, and Jesus embodies them both. God's word calls us to grieve sin. The very, th- very first thing that Jesus preached when he began preaching, Mark chapter 1, is the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. We ask everyone who gets baptized in our church, are you turning away from sin? We don't just mean, are you going to stop doing bad things? We mean, are you changing your mind? That's repentance, a change of mind. Are you changing your mind about sin? Where once you thought it was no big deal, where once you thought it was your own prerogative, or where once you thought any way is as good as any other way, now will you say, I hate every false way, and my eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. My prayer for you 
in these four weeks that we look at Psalm 119 and especially this morning is that you don't just walk away saying, wow, Psalm 119 is a great poem. Wow, the Bible, I feel guilty. I really should read it more. But that you walk away saying, God's word has something to offer me that can't be found anywhere else. And I've got to make it a consistent and regular and central part of my life. And when you do that, You won't just be people of the book, although you'll be that, but you'll be people when you read this book and you understand it and you apply it to your life, you'll be people who give your life to follow Jesus Christ. You'll be people who look at Jesus Christ and say, no sacrifice is too great, no challenge too difficult. He's the pearl of great price. He's the one treasure that's worth giving up everything else that I have in order to obtain. And so my prayer is is that as you become people who love this book, You become people who love Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the written word that is true. We're grateful for the living word who has provided salvation for us. And Father, I pray for the folks in this room. As we've talked about Psalm 119, some of them may feel conviction Some of them may need to feel conviction. Father, and we ask that your spirit would convict us where that needs to happen in our lives. Father, I pray for the folks in this room who are not followers of Christ. I pray that they would not leave thinking they just need to read the Bible more to be a good person, but that they would see that the Bible is a story, it's a promise. It's a path before us that you've kept your word and that you call us to follow after Christ. Father, as we sing about your word and its surety and its trustworthiness and its truthfulness, we pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would move us to obedience. We pray that you would change our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.